And we do read, Paul the Apostle, inspired by the Spirit of God, he's writing and says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Father, we do pray that this morning that our ears would be open to receive from you. Lord, this chapter has some very important things in truth to, that is being declared to us. And Lord, one of the things that we're going to see is that you keep your promises. You, you are faithful to your word. You do not cast us away that belong to you. And Lord, I thank you that we can read this and be encouraged ourselves. You have a plan for the nation of Israel, for their restoration. They have been blinded. They have seeked their own righteousness through the law. But Lord, we know that you have a remnant of them. They have come to faith through Jesus Christ. And just as the Gentile salvation has come to us, you have a remnant that have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Because we remember that Jesus is our salvation. It's not found in anything else or anyone else. And Father, I pray that as we, your people, hear your promises, that every dot and tittle of the scriptures is going to be fulfilled. So Lord, I pray it stir our hearts. It would cause us to move out of this place more desiring to live for you because we live in very unique times. And so, Lord, uh, touch our hearts. Help us be attentive. To remember right now just to make sure our ringers are off our phones. We want to be free from distractions and to be blessed by you right now th through the word. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we move into chapter 11, it's a very important chapter for us to, to understand. Matter of fact, I was um, planning on getting through verse 21 of the chapter. So first service, we got through the first seven verses um, of, uh, of, of chapter 11. And so we won't be going through the first 21 verses. But I think that it's important for us to kind of lay a foundation of what Paul is saying here in this chapter because if you've been with us in our study of the book of Romans here, particularly over the last few weeks, uh, and just traveling through this epistle, we know that Paul has presented the gospel to us very clearly. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God for salvation. He then tells us our need, every person, uh, for the gospel, because we're sinners. And then he tells us about justification that comes freely by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then he talked to us in chapters 6, 7, and 8 about justification. And that now that we are saved, that we live for him. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, you recall in chapter 8. We have the spirit of adoption that we cry out, Abba, Father. And then the chapter ended with we being told that there's no separation from his love. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul's just elated as he's writing that, and it's such a wonderful, powerful truth that we have looked at going through chapter 8, going through the whole of what we've seen so far in the book of Romans. And sometimes people will look at chapters then 9, 10, and 11 that we've been traveling through and will continue to, that they say, well, it's out of place because Paul then turns to his countrymen, the Jews, and he begins to address them. 
And if you've been with us in our study, at chapter 9, he expresses continual sorrow and grief for them because they have not come to, to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And in chapter 10, he says, they have sought their own righteousness, ignorant of God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God because they were seeking it through the law. They thought they didn't need the Savior, Jesus Christ. You have been Bless and benefited, chapter 9. You had the covenant. You had the promises. You had the prophets that came to you, the glory. Uh, you had Messiah that came to you. But yet you have rejected God's righteousness that is through faith in Jesus Christ because you have continued to try to find salvation through the law. And in chapter 9, even though Paul writes about Israel's past dealings, that God sovereignly chose them as his people, and, and we know that God sovereignly works. Uh, he is sovereign. He chooses. We talked about uh, those difficult subjects such as predestination and, and uh, God having knowledge that we can't fully understand. But then in chapter 10, he kind of balances it out. And I love that Paul does that because he talks about Israel's present dealings. And that is, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And all of us are in that category, whosoever. That is, you have a choice. So God chooses. We have a choice. Both are at work. We don't fully understand it. But it's declared in the scripture that if anyone, the invitation is given, that as you call on the name of the Lord, whosoever shall be saved. And now as we go into chapter 11, Paul's going to be talking about God's future dealings with Israel. And I think that this is very important for us to, to have a good foundation as we go through it, what God has said concerning the restoration of Israel. Because towards the end of the chapter, he's going to say that blindness has come in part to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles uh, has come. And then in in that day, all of Israel is going to be saved. So what is Paul talking about? What are we defining when we talk about the restoration of Israel? You might recall in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus was about ready to ascend, they said, are you going to restore the nation now? Is your kingdom going to be established and you're going to uh, restore the nation? And we know that, that they were looking for that. So when we talk about the restoration of Israel as a nation, the, his brethren, the Jews, we know that throughout church history that blindness has come in part, not a total blindness, but there have been those Hebrew believers, those Jewish believers, that have recognized their eyes being opened that Jesus is their Messiah. But there's going to come a time that the end of the tribulation period, when the nation of Israel goes through great tribulation, that that their eyes are going to be opened up and they're going to recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. That's what we're talking about, the restoration of Israel. And then when Jesus comes back in the second coming of Jesus Christ, and we're going to come back with him, the church, then he's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to sit upon the throne of David there in Jerusalem, and he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. So that's what the Old Testament talks about. And if you were with us on Wednesday 
Wednesday nights going through the book of Isaiah, there are many verses that speak about how the time's going to come when they're going to cry out to their God. They're going to worship him and, and the Lord's going to come and establish his kingdom, the millennium reign, and he's going to rule from Jerusalem. And we know that even as in Jeremiah chapter 31, that God would say, as he talks about the new covenant, the new covenant that we enjoy, no longer am I going to write my will and uh, my word on the tablets of stone, but it's going to be written on the tablets of your heart. And then he says something in the Lord, very important. He says, when will I cast off all of the seed of Israel? He says, when you can measure the heavens, when you can understand the depths of the earth. In other words, never. We will never figure out and be able to measure all of the universe, the heaven out there. We give estimates. You know, when I was in junior high, uh, the universe was 4 billion light years across, they believe. Now it's like 16 billion light years across. It can, they can see further. So I know that, you know, it's a guess. They don't know what's beyond that. We will never be able to figure that out or the depths of the earth. And so here we see that God has given a promise to the nation of Israel and he promised that he's going to restore them. Even Jesus talked about it. You recall that when Jesus was weeping over Jerusalem and he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and it's right before he went to the cross. And you who have stoned the prophets and, and killed those who were sent to you, how I long to gather you under my wings as a mother hen gathers her chicks to herself. But you were not willing to come. And now your house is left to you desolate, and you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we know that the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament, that he writes about the time when they will have their eyes opened up and, and they will mourn for the one that they see who is pierced. And they will say, where did you get those wounds? And he will say, I got these wounds in the house of my friends. And so the Old Testament speaks very clearly and also the New Testament that there's going to be a restoring of Israel. Now the reason that I want us to, to understand that is because there's a theology that has been in the church for hundreds of years uh, and it's growing in actually in popularity even among some uh, Christian churches and even evangelical churches. You've probably heard of it. We've talked about it before. It's called replacement theology. And what replacement theology says is that the promises that God gave to Israel are, are void and, and no longer applicable to them. Uh, they're the ones that crucified the Messiah. And so the church is spiritual Israel. Those promises pass to us and there will be no restoration of Israel. Uh, there will be, you know, the nation of Israel today coming into the land. It's just a coincidence. And we replace Israel. Well, the problem is nowhere in the scripture does it say that the church replaces Israel. And I think it's important for us to understand that God God said, I will bring this to pass. And to adopt replacement theology, which again usually is followed by a preterist view that uh, the events of the book of Revelation in chapters 6 through 19 have mostly taken place and that we're just waiting for the return of the Lord and, and that, you know, the church is going to go through the tribulation period. Uh, usually they will say there's no millennium reign. It's amazing how the rapture of the church is really under attack in churches today. 
We don't believe in the rapture of the church. We don't believe that there's going to be a millennium reign of Jesus Christ. And, and it concerns me because to adopt those kinds of thinking, and they're Christians that love the Lord, but to adopt replacement theology, you have to ignore hundreds of verses of the Old Testament and sometimes whole chapters. We know that every dot and tittle is going to be fulfilled. And when we started looking at the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah says that every one of these prophecies Isaiah tells to us early in the book, in chapter 2, I believe, is going to be fulfilled. It's going to be in the latter days. And we are seeing today very unique times. Do you realize that we are the generation of Christians, that we have seen Israel become a nation once again, and we have the church? It was only for a short time, the earliest of the Christians from Pentecost to 70 AD, that the church existed and the nation of Israel existed, and that has not existed for 2,000 years till 1948, when Israel became a nation once again. And the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 37 would come to pass. The vision of the dry bones coming together and they stood up and God breathed life into them. We've seen that happen as a nation. They're back into their original homeland. And that had not been heard of in human history that a group of people have been out of their original homeland for 2,000 years are back again as they would declare independence in 1948. And God has sustained them. And Amos says that once they come back into the land, they're not going to be plucked out again. And we need to understand as Christians that God has a plan for the church and he has a plan for Israel and that we, the church, are going to be raptured before the tribulation period where Daniel chapter 9, the 70th week of Daniel that is spoken of, Daniel, know this, that 70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. Who's Daniel's people? The Jews. Daniel's holy city, it's Jerusalem. It's not Rome. It's not Washington, D.C. It's not Salt Lake City like the Mormons say. It is Jerusalem. Seventy weeks are determined and 69 weeks are going to pass and then Messiah is going to be cut off. He's going to be crucified. And so there's been a gap between the 69th week, a week is a seven-year period, and the 70th week of Daniel. There's still a seven-year period where God is focused on Daniel's people, the Jews, and the holy city of Jerusalem. And in the tribulation period, when the Antichrist makes a covenant with them for a week, and then we know that there's going to be emphasis on Israel during that time. We are going to be raptured to church before that time, I believe. So that's why it's really important that you come out on Wednesday nights to study the book of Revelation, because there's a special blessing that's there for those who read the words, hear the words, keep the words. But we know that it's going to come to pass. We have been privileged to know what is going to happen that brings in the coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we know that the Jews at the end of the tribulation period, again, their eyes are going to be opened up and they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they will receive Jesus as their Messiah. And that's what Paul writes about in chapter 11 here, that in that day, all of Israel will be saved. So it's very important that we understand that because it determines how we look at the rest of Scripture and particularly when it comes to the Old Testament. So here is, you know, uh, the, the uh, opening of verse 1 here. He says, has God cast away his people? He says, certainly not. Now we have seen that phrase, haven't we? 
We have seen it that Paul says, should we continue in sin that grace abounds? He says, certainly not. He's saying, no way, absolutely not. And here he's telling us that God hasn't cast away his people like some believe today. He said, first of all, look at me. I'm an Israelite. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I've been saved. Paul would write in the previous chapter again, and he will say it again here, that there's a remnant that have come into salvation. He says blindness has come in part, not total blindness, but blindness has come in part to them, just as there are many people, non-Jews, that blindness has come to them because the enemy, Satan, blinds those who are unbelievers, and we need to remember that. So when you pray for your unsaved family members and co-workers and you know those who go to school with or neighbors or whoever it might be you pray lord take their blindness away because they're being blinded right now open up their eyes spiritually so early in the church they were predominantly hebrew believers we know that the day of pentecost 3000 got saved and and the gospel was there in Jerusalem and it would begin to spread from there. We have the epistle of Hebrews as the, the letter was written by perhaps Paul the apostle. We're not sure who the author was, but it was probably Paul writing to those Hebrew believers encouraging them, listen, Jesus is superior. Don't go back to the old covenant. And, and remember that Jesus, he, what he has accomplished. And so we have all of that. But Paul here, he's going to make the point that Israel's rejection is not total and it's not final. One day the nation will be saved just as Paul was saved. He continues showing us that he has not cast away his people by another example. Let's read verse 2. God has not cast away his people from whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So Paul's second proof that God has not cast away his people taken from the life of Elijah, you know, the fiery prophet of the Old Testament. And you might recall in 1 Kings chapter 18 that Elijah says to the house of Israel, the 10 northern tribes, how long are you going to be between two opinions? If Baal is God, then worship him. If Jehovah's God, you need to worship him. And he issued that challenge to the prophets of Baal that you build uh, an altar, put a sacrifice on it, call on your God to consume the sacrifice. I'll do the same thing. And as you read through 1 Kings 18, the prophets of Baal all day long are praying to Baal and, and nothing is done, nothing happens. And then all of a sudden, at the end of the day, here comes Elijah. And as he has his altar and a sacrifice sitting there. He gives a simple prayer and all of a sudden, whoosh, fire comes down from heaven to consume the sacrifice, the wood of the sacrifice. And the people give a great shout and then they slew 450 prophets of Baal. Well, it was great victory uh, for Elijah and, and for the nation. But then Ahab, who is the king of the 10 northern tribes, uh, a very wicked man, and his wife Jezebel. Now, if you've been with us on Wednesday nights, that we talked about Jezebel because to the church of Thyatira, you have allowed that, that woman Jezebel to 
seduce the people in the church to idolatry and fornication. And she calls herself a prophetess, but she was a false teacher. And we went back and we talked about Jezebel, how she was one that was very violent. She killed some of the prophets of God. She was one that plunged the nation deep into Baal worship and also into to fornication. And, and she was just bad news. She sends word to Elijah that Elijah, what you did to my prophets of Baal, I'm going to do to you. In other words, I'm going to slew you. I'm going to lop your head off. And Elijah becomes fearful. He runs from the northern part of Israel, Mount Carmel, all the way down to the desert of Israel. He falls asleep. The angel wakes him up and says, Elijah, awake and eat for the journey is long. And he does. And then he's there in the mountain uh, of God down in Arabia in the cave. And he says, God, just kill me. Things are so bad. He's depressed. He's defeated. He's discouraged. And the Lord says, Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? In this cave of depression and discouragement and despair and defeat. And I think that perhaps that some of you can say, I've been in that cave. And maybe there are some that are here today. You're saying, I'm in that cave right now. And the Lord desires to minister his grace and love to you. He says to Elijah, Elijah, listen, I'm still working. I'm still working, Elijah. And he's working in your life. And he desires to draw you to himself for you to experience more of his love and his grace and his faithfulness to you. And Elijah says, you know what, Lord? Everybody's turned their back on you. It's so bad. They're carnal. They're full of iniquity, the nation. I alone serve you. And it was Elijah that, in verse 2, it says that he pleaded against Israel. Lord, you need to do something. You need to bring judgment or something upon them. Now, how would you like to have Elijah as your pastor? You know, you're all a bunch of sinners. You're all full of iniquity. You know, you need to be like me. And that's what Elijah was doing. You know, when I first got into ministry, when I first started the church, I had to be very careful because it's like, you know, we're Calvary Chapel. We have the corner on ministry. You know, we're the real Christians. We're the serious Christians because we go through the Bible. And the Lord, you know, he's shown me that, that first of all, I have many that are in this city that love the Lord, to go to other churches, that minister in other areas. And I'm very thankful for the diversity and, and for the churches here that stand for the truth of God's word, that uh, the Christians are there, they're ministering. It's, it's so wonderful to be able to see that. So Elijah thought that it couldn't get worse. I'm the only one left. You're all out of troops, Lord. And the Lord said, listen, I have 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. I still got a remnant. I'm still working. And we know that he's still working today. Because we can look at a church and say, you know, they're, they're carnal and they're, you know, they're just involved in entertainment and all this. God has this remnant of people that are there that love him, that desire to be used of him. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, going through those churches, even the churches that he really didn't have anything good to say, like the church of Sardis, he said, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You're dead spiritually. 
And then he says to them, but I do have some. They have not defiled their garments. I still have my, my remnant of people. And then verse 6, and if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Underline this verse. Highlight it in your Bible. Grace, of course, means getting what we don't deserve, the undeserved favor of God. Paul has made the case that we are justified, that is, saved freely by his grace. That word freely literally means without any cost. That is, to us, it costs God his only son. But verse 6, notice here that Paul uses the word grace four times. He uses the word work four times. In other words, Paul is saying we are accepted by God wholly by his grace or wholly by works. I cannot be accepted partly by one and partly by another. And if I am accepted by grace, then works has nothing to do with my salvation. But if it's by works, then grace has nothing to do with it. You might recall that in Romans chapter 4, verse 4, that Paul wrote, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. So if I am expecting God to accept me by his grace, then there is no work that I can do to make me acceptable. If I am seeking God's acceptance by my works, then grace has no effect upon my life. And how Christians oftentimes will get the two mixed up and, and mix the two together. Romans chapter 11 verse 6 here makes it clear grace and works are mutually exclusive when it comes to being declared justified. And yet so many Christians or people can try to combine the two. You might be thinking, well, what about James? James says that faith without works is dead. So in that, as you read the book of James, is James saying that it is faith and works that brings salvation? No. Is it faith plus works that brings salvation? No. James is telling us it is faith that works. It is a living faith in us. The reality of Christ in our hearts. He says, I'll show you my faith by my works. That the evidence that our faith is real is by how we live our lives. Somehow, some way. Not that we live a perfect life. Not that, 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 that we are ones that we're righteous in and of ourselves, but somehow the reality of Jesus Christ is being shown because we have a living faith that is in us. You see, that's what James is saying. And Paul really says the same thing with us. He says, should we continue in sin, as I said, uh, that grace may abound? He said, no, we live in a newness of life. We identify with Christ. We walk in the Spirit, don't we? So the scriptures is very clear. And the good news for you and for me is God's word declares that I am accepted wholly by his grace, not of works. Ephesians chapter 2, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's not of works, right? Lest anyone should boast. But we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. In other words, that we are created to bring pleasure and glory to the Lord. And we get to be a part of a kingdom. And we get to invest in the kingdom and be used of him. So verse 7, and this is where we're going to end this morning. What then Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have attained it, and the rest were blinded. So the Jews in Israel as a whole were still trying to relate to God through the law, right? They hadn't received his grace. And of course, Paul has, has mentioned repeatedly 
that the Jews were seeking righteous standing before God on the basis of keeping the law, doing good works. Now, the other thing that this chapter declares to you and to me in the book of Romans is there are some that come with uh, the other extreme uh, that come to what they call a dual, uh, uh, double covenant or a dual covenant. And they say the Jews are saved because they are God's special people and by another covenant, the covenant that he made with them. The scriptures, and Paul makes it very clear, he grieves over them. If that was true, and there's some well-known pastors that teach your congregation that, that the Jews are automatically saved, we know that the scripture declares to us that it's not because you're a descendant, physical descendant of Abraham, but if you're a true you know, descendant of Abraham, it's one of faith, because Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And Paul, why would he say in chapter 9 that I grieve and I have a continual sorrow wishing that my countrymen would be saved? There's only one way to salvation, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. He is our salvation. There's none other. So if you ever hear that of a dual covenant, it's a false <coughs> teaching that has crept into the church in some circles of Christianity. And we know that there, he speaks about that, that there are those of you know, his countrymen that were always looking to the law, looking to the covenant, looking to the sacrifices, to the feast, and they thought because they had that, their traditions, they got very comfortable with that and secure in their traditions and rituals. They saw no need for the Savior to come to him. And you see, here's the thing for you and for me. That's not only true for them, but it is true for the Gentiles, that is, non-Jewish people as well. We know that there are those around us that think, well, because I grew up in the church, that I, you know, I'm saved. Or my parents were Christians. Or, you know, I was baptized in the church at one time. I was confirmed in the church. There are those who might think, you know, I have a tradition. I go to church at Christmas, and I'm okay. I'll be able to stand before God and say I was a good person. I look to those things, to those traditions, and they think they're saved because they're a good person. Now, today, it's interesting, um, Yom Kippur, which is the holiest day in the Jewish year, uh, in Leviticus chapter 16, is called the Day of Atonement. And in the Old Testament, what the high priest would do is take the blood of the sacrifice, he would go behind the veil in the tabernacle or in the temple, he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, and then made atonement for the nation for a whole year. They don't have a temple now. The second temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. There hasn't been a temple in Jerusalem for 2,000 years. Now they are preparing for another temple, and there is going to be a temple in the tribulation period. The Bible makes that very clear. Paul speaks of it. John writes about it in Revelation chapter 11. They are preparing for it even right now. They are all ready to go. Listen, if they're preparing for the temple... In the tribulation period, they got all the furnishings ready to go. The priests that are, you know, um, have been trained for sacrifices. Don't be surprised if you hear about building the altar. I think we got some news right at the end of the year. So somebody was telling me about it, that they're ready to build that altar. And, and I said a couple years ago, don't be surprised if that happens. Because when they came back to build a second temple, we know that Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, what was the very first thing they did? They pushed the rubble aside. They made the altar for sacrifices. Then they built the temple. 
If we are that close, how close are we to the rapture of the church? And I know that we don't know the day or the hour of the rapture of the church, but we can know the times and the seasons that we're in. And as we see them back into the land, 1948, the declaration, Amos says they won't be plucked out. We know that certain events in the end times cannot happen unless Israel becomes a nation once again. But they're looking to their traditions. They're looking to their trust. On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement is now a day of reflection. They reflect on, I'm a good person, and hopefully my good works outweigh my bad works. Does that sound familiar to perhaps people that you know, that we've talked about? So I hope that going through the book of Romans has established and made firm your faith and your knowledge that it comes by faith in him, that salvation, and that we can enjoy him. And it's about relationship. I do want to bring it home a little bit closer because we as Christians, that we can get very comfortable with traditions and all of this. And, and you know, I, again, I, I've gone to church. I was baptized in the church. I used to go to Bible study. But the Lord desires for us to continue to grow in our love and relationship with him. He desires for us to draw closer to him and how we need to do that to enjoy him and that's my prayer for us my prayer for us here at Calvary Chapel is that we would draw closer to him and that our heart's prayer and desire is this that Lord breathe life into me and Lord we are in days where we're to be watching and sober and vigilant very unique days and you are here and I am here and this church is here for such a time as this to be here to give light to others who think I'm okay I'm cool man you know I used to go to church when I was a kid or my parents are Christians or I'm a good person and that we can bring to them the truth of the gospel and the incredible love and grace of Jesus Christ, what he has done for them. That's what we get opportunity to be able to do. And to say that, listen, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I pray that all of us that are here, because I know the coffee shop is full and there's people listening on live stream, people are going to listen on the radio. We're going to give you that opportunity right now. And if you haven't called on the name of the Lord, you're trusting in traditions or being a good person or I went to church, those things won't save you. It is coming and recognizing your need to be forgiven because all of us have sinned and all of us need to come to the cross at Calvary where he died for you and call upon the name of the Lord. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for these few verses that we went over. And, Lord... Um, we can put trust in other things. Uh, and Lord, the vast majority of us here, we know that salvation, our redemption, our, our justification comes by faith in you alone. So Lord, I do pray that if there's anyone here that you've never come to Jesus Christ and called upon his name asking for forgiveness, that today is the day of salvation. He loves you. That's why he came, to die for you specifically, individually. It was you that was on his heart and on his mind as he went to that place of execution to hang on that cross for you. And then he cried out from the cross, it is finished. I've paid the price. I've done the work. He was put into a grave. He rose again after three days. And he is alive. 
And he's calling you right now to himself for you to come and recognize your need to be forgiven because we've all sinned and to yield to him as Lord and Savior. And if that's you this morning, will you make that decision? It's the most important decision you will ever, ever make. Don't pass it up. Don't harden your heart to it. It has eternal consequences. Because those who reject Jesus or think they don't need the Savior of the world, Jesus, if you think that I can get into heaven on my own, that the Word of God declares, no. It is only by faith in Jesus. You can call to Him right now. And you can pray right where you are that Jesus, I hear the gospel that I have sinned and Jesus, the Son of God, came and died for me. And I ask, Lord, that you would forgive me of my sins. And I believe that he's alive, speaking to my heart. And I respond to the invitation, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord, I call upon you right now. I ask Jesus that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for bringing me here for salvation, for your love for me. And I do want to know you and walk in this newness of life. And Lord, help me to keep my eyes on you right now. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. And if you prayed that prayer, anybody that's here, we got a prayer team up front. We're going to end here in just a minute. Come up and tell them the decision you made. Grab me if you can. Afterwards, tell me you made that decision. If you're listening on live stream or on the radio, call us. Tell us of the decision that you made. Because we want to just bless you and encourage you. And for all of us, that we would be ones, that, Lord, that we would always have our trust in you, in you alone. That we would be watching in the days that we're in being discerning and Lord knowing that your coming is near we don't know the day or the hour but we are commanded to be watchful and waiting and continue to serve occupy till you come we have opportunity to bring hope to people around us in the light of the gospel so Lord may that be worked out in our lives as we leave this place rejoicing in your love for us and it's in Jesus name that we pray Amen Would you please stand?